hey guys, I'm not going to say it. (laughs) We got two weeks left. Do you realize that? Like y'all are rock stars. Look at each other and say, you're a rock star. Thank you. That was enthusiastic. I feel like that was caffeinated and sugared and all the things. It's true. Like this has been a journey so far, but finish strong. That is what I would say. If if I could say anything to all of you, which I can, because I'm up here with the microphone and you're not. So I would say this, finish strong, finish strong, because God still has a lot to say to each of us, does he not? Um, I'm so happy that you're here today. We, uh, you're going to have some great conversation in your groups. How about that timeline? Was that kind of cool to stop for a minute? Like, I, I don't know how you guys felt, but it's the section, I think day four or something, um, where, and if you didn't get that far, I highly recommend that you take the time to go there. But where you get to look at the things that have happened in your life and you get to, to stop and reflect and say, what are the wondrous deeds that God has done in the midst of that, good and bad? It was just, it was powerful for me because you know what I noticed? I'm getting all off. This is just not even on my notes, but you know what I noticed about that? I have to tell you, whenever I filled that out and I started marking the things on my timeline and then I started going, oh, well, look, God did this. And then God did this. You know what was so cool about that? was It, it, it was something that took me into the next thing. Did you see that? Like my next big moment, whether it be good or bad, I felt like God had prepared me in some kind of way. And so I say all that to, to just share with you. I hope you will take the time to do that and reflect on, on who this, this God is in your life and, and how this King can be King over your life. Um, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at a Psalm that you guys did not cover in your homework. We're going to look at Psalm 72. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it to Psalm 72. This psalm is called a royal psalm, okay? And the thing about this psalm is it says that it's um, of Solomon. Do you have that in your, little, in your little subtitle there, of Solomon? Well, when we see Solomon's name appear in psalms, we see it two ways. Sometimes it says of Solomon, and sometimes it says for Solomon. And, and you know what that means? It means we just don't really know. <laughs> I love that, the mystery of God, right? But here's what scholars, there, there's kind of two camps on this one psalm in Psalm 72. The first camp thinks that this was David writing this in anticipation of the kingdom that was coming with his son Solomon, who would be taking over as king. So, so, so some scholars believe that it was David writing it, and I kind of lean that way. Um, some believe that it might have been Solomon that wrote it as he was entering um, this new reign that he was going to be taking over as king. But either way, here's what it is. It's a royal psalm that's looking, it's anticipation for the monarchy that will be taking over. So it's a changing of hands, okay? And so when you read through this, when we study this today, I want you to remember that. that that's what this is. It's a, it's it's this great anticipation of something that's coming. And in this psalm, what you're going to see is we're going to see a description and we're going to see essentially a job description for this ultimate king. Ultimate king. Well, so as I was thinking through this, I was like looking at Psalm 72 and um, I started I started thinking back like all my experience going to all those um, coronation ceremonies for kings. <laughs> Y'all haven't been to a coronation ceremony for a king, have you? You guys are looking at me like, oh, really? Have you now? You're rather cultured. <laughs> no. I'm thinking about this and I'm like, I have no idea what this person's talking about. I have no idea what it looks like to go from one king to the next. I don't know. And so I started thinking like, what do I, what, what kind of ceremonies have I been to that I do see like promises laid out, right? Like this formal idea of something that we're anticipating that's to come. And so immediately I thought of weddings, right? You guys think of weddings? Weddings. 
Um, weddings. I, I, you know, this new, I've been married a long time now. And so back in the olden days, when I got married, we didn't write our own vows. That's cute, but I'm really glad that I didn't have to do that. Amen. We just did the old timey one, right? That, that, that works. I think it works. But nowadays, have you been to weddings now with these hip trendy Pinterest brides where they have these cool, like these cool vows that they write and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm part of this. This is like this precious thing. Well, I went to a wedding recently and uh, this summer and it was as a good buddy of ours and he does youth ministry and he's our young life leader in our area. If you know him, if you know Robbie Mitchell, um, some of you are smiling and laughing a little bit now. Well, at his wedding, he and his, his wife-to-be wrote their own vows. And um, I felt like the least I could do after last week was read something funny for you guys today. He has nothing to do with Psalm 72, but I wanted you to hear his vows. And here's why I joke, because they're funny, but I also want you to realize like he was walking into this ceremony that matters with this anticipation and this promise of what was to come. And so, so here, here, I texted my friend Robbie and within like 25 seconds, he's like, I said, hey man, this is a super weird request. Can I have a copy of the vows that you wrote for Courtney? He's like, yeah, sure. Text, sends it, happy face, smiley face, thumbs up. I'm like, who does that? Anyway, he did. <laughs> you think you're gonna get to know him pretty well when you hear these vows. So, okay, so w- without further ado, these are the vows that this wedding ceremony that Courtney is his wife to be, just to lay the scene out for you. She's an accountant. Hello, are you an accountant? Any of you, account- some of you accountants are like, yes, she's precise and accurate and always smart. All right, he's not, okay? Her vows were so beautiful and so lovely and so well thought out and everything. His were this, ready? Okay. <laughs> precious. Courtney, you make me feel like the most special and competent person ever. Not only do you put up with my shenanigans, you encourage them. I can't wait to be your husband and daddy to sweet Lou Bear. I need to press pause. That's their dog. Okay. That's her dog. It's one of those, um, what are those things called? French bulldogs. Anybody? You people are passionate about those breeds. I don't know. That's what this is. She's quite passionate about her dog. So as I continue, As beautiful as you are on the outside, your heart for the Lord, for people, your family, far exceeds external adornment. I don't know anyone who shows a more focused, precise, specific love. I guess she was an accountant, is an accountant, um, for each individual person that you do know. I get giddy thinking about our future. And then he goes into his vows. You ready? Is your heart just pitter-pattering? Okay, here we go. I vow to continue taking you to breakfast, lunch, second lunch, dinner, second dinner, and late night dates to (laughs) Chick-fil-A for some mostly unsweet and a little bit of sweet tea always and forever. Now, a man truly loves you if he knows your drink, right? That's, That's precise, that's specific. I love that part. I vow to do Saturday binge watching of every new season of Jack Ryan. That's also so romantic. Um, I vow to make you laugh or at least go down swinging and attempting to do so. I vow to build and sustain a family environment where dancing on the table is not only acceptable, but encouraged. And this is the most precious part, ready? I vow to add to the long list of nicknames for Kenzie, that's the dog. Nicknames already in place are, I'm not kidding guys, he's standing in front of the preacher, everyone's quiet and he starts with this list. Kenzie Lou, Baby Lou, Lou Bear, Lou Mama, Lou Lou, Big Booty Lou, Crazy, Kiki, Little Nugget, Little Muffin, Little Chunk, 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 Chunk Monkey, (laughs) Honey Bear, Sugar Bear, Cutie Bear, Sleepy Bear, Stinky Bear, and Bear Bear. Okay, that's true love, right? 
that's a vow. Well, then he, he finishes it with this. He says, I vow to lead you by loving you as Christ loves the church, led by the Holy Spirit always. I vow, you, I vow to you to seek Jesus and his kingdom first so that my love for you will be from God's heart. I vow to lead our family to the feet of Jesus so that the Mitchell family will be known as a family who extravagantly loves Jesus. I vow to continue holding your hand every time there's prayer. I vow to continue stopping us at a moment's notice to pray in the middle of any circumstance. I vow to put your needs ahead of mine, especially ahead of others. And I vow to always come back to Jesus so that my love for you will be Christ's love. Now that's a promise, right? And so when we look at this psalm and you think about um, this, being, this being song or this being spoken over a coronation ceremony that's taking this king as, into a new realm of, of, of this leadership, this kingdom, just remember that that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing this beautiful idea of the ultimate king and what we hope will be the ultimate kingdom, Okay. Psalm 72, not quite as funny as Robbie's. I see no references to Chick-fil-A. However, we could infer if we were reading the message. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna read it. You can follow along in your Bible, but I just want you to get an understanding of, of the whole of this thing. And one thing you'll notice, I'm gonna end in verse 17, and here's why. Verses 18 through 20 are what's considered a doxology that closes the book on book two of the Psalms. Remember how in the very beginning we talked about there's 150 of these things. And so the arrangers have broken them into like five collections. Well, at the end of each collection, you find like a little doxology like this, where it just says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, all things from one. And that's what we see here. And so we don't think that it was included necessarily in the Psalm proper. We think it was probably added so that we could see that it's a closing of that, that section. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'm going to read it out loud. Follow along if you have your Bible open. Psalm 72, a psalm of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Verse four, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Verse five, may they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Verse eight, may he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish on the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Verse 12, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their lives and precious is the blood in his sight. Verse 15, long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave and may its fruit be like Lebanon. 
and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. Verse 17, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. How about that for a king? That's somebody we can get behind, right? Interestingly, um, you think about I've read a lot about about monarchies and kings and stuff because, you know, obviously we don't have one of those around here. But the thing that's interesting is now with this part of life in this country, we have a democracy, right? And you know the reason we choose democracy here? It's because we are a fallen, evil people, aren't we? And we can't put one man in absolute control because ultimately he will fall, And so I find it so cool that like David or Solomon or whoever wrote this was actually going, okay, now this is what we're looking for when we're looking for a king. This is what we need. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to break it down with you guys. I wanted to talk through five things that we see um, David or Solomon laying out for us, five five characteristics, if you will, of the the perfect king. couple things before we start. People often wonder, and you're going to see this too, and we're going to draw comparisons to Jesus as our ultimate king, right? But um, there, there's always been this question about this psalm. Was this a prayer for the coming king or was this prophecy? Was this history or was it prophetic? Um, I, w- I would say this, it was relevant at the time. It was relevant for what they were doing. And so every time a new king came in, they would sing the song and there'd be this big, beautiful idea that we want, this is our goal, right? This is our vow, this is our hope. But that it was also about the coming Messiah's reign. And you know, I always wonder, like this is just Chris Brain, I'm letting you in for a minute, just for a second, because it's dangerous in there. But I always wonder this, like when, when somebody sits down to pen something that ends up being very prophetic, do you wonder what they knew? Or do you wonder if they were just being obedient to God and writing this thing out, not knowing that they were actually foretelling what was coming? And that's what I think Psalm 72 is. It's both historic, both a prayer and prophetic, talking about Jesus, the ultimate king. Again, I told you we don't know exactly who the author is. Could be David, could be Solomon. But no matter who it is, we know that they're looking toward an ultimate king. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take a look. Um, so I'm just going to go through 72 and just some little bits and pieces and, and show you some places about this ultimate kingship, about what an ultimate king should look like. The thing I want you to know, though, as we go through this, we just talked about it, is um, the kingship of Christ is always the primary focus of the Bible. Do you realize that? It doesn't matter if we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It is all about Jesus. And I think this is going to be one of those moments where you're like, at least I was, I just was like overwhelmed with Oh, hey, so that's talking about Jesus. And so watch for it, okay? I'm going to point out some ways that we're seeing it reflecting what's coming with Jesus. Um, The first characteristic that that a godly king, an ultimate king should be, is he should be a righteous judge. He should be a righteous judge. Verses 1 and 2, he calls out specifically to God to make this king this righteous judge. He says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Over and over, he's talking. Hey, this is what I think is super cool. To enact justice, you realize this. Like, think about anything. Think about a judge. Think about, you know, law enforcement, anybody that's fair. To To enact justice, there must first be trust, Right? And so what he's trying to lay out is he's trying to lay out the fact that that righteousness is foundational. Justice is foundational. So we have to start with that. He opens with this petition of these fundamental foundational things. You know, when you think about Jesus as king, 
I love, um, in, in, in the Old Testament, back, we're in the Old Testament now, but if you go backward a little bit, um, there's a book called Isaiah. And Isaiah was just all prophecy looking forward to the King Jesus, okay? And I love, as I was going through this, I kept seeing all these Isaiah things popping out that coincide with, with what we're reading. So if we're talking about a righteous judge, think about Jesus as this righteous judge. Listen to this. In Isaiah 9, 7, you might have put this on your Christmas card, or, you know, a minute ago. You'll, you'll recognize it. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And I want you to hear this. The thing, we hear this all the time. Think about Christmas, right? But listen to these words. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the Righteous Judge. That's who Jesus came to be, ultimate king. Well, the second thing we learn um, from, from our author is that uh, this ultimate king needs to be a defender of the needy, right? You heard several different places in verse four, and then there's a whole section in verses 12 through 14 about delivering the needy when he calls and how he has pity on the weak and the needy and he saves the lives of the needy and from oppression and violence, he redeems their lives. All these things, right? Very specific. Now, when you're talking about a king, like the king has a lot of power, man. He's got a lot of power. He and his government can do a lot of amazing things, right? He will bring justice to the poor, though those in, in this day, they were mostly um, denied justice. And the king and his government had an opportunity to make sure that that was administered fairly. That's kind of a cool thing to call a king out on, right? He will save the children of the needy. The king and the government could rescue those that were most vulnerable to society. There's power. They can do that. And so I love that even on the day that he's getting the crown, he's being called out and said, this is what you have to do. This is how you have to be. It says he will break into pieces the oppressor. The king and his government will protect Israel, keeping people free from external domination and internal corruption. That's a big ask. Well, Jesus as king. This is, this is my favorite part of, of, of the idea that Jesus as king, he was a defender of needy. We, I don't know what you believe about Jesus. I don't know what you know about him, but I bet you probably know this part of Jesus as king, the defender of the needy. In Matthew 5, you can flip there if you want, but I'm going to read it so you don't have to. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 6. Here's the scene, okay? So like Jesus is on the move doing ministry and he's got his posse, right? Remember his, his 12, his, his apostles that are going to be later told that um, th this is what's about to happen. I'm gonna be gone and you're gonna be the message. You're gonna put the message out to the world, to the ends of the earth, right? And so he's preparing them. So here's what he does in chapter five, verse one. It says this, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. That's Jesus, okay? crowds that were following him. He was ministering to them and all that good stuff. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. I love this because he's telling his, his, his guys, the ones that are going to be the voice, the hands and feet of Jesus. He says this, verse two, and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those whose hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, he goes on, um, but I love that he begins with the least. Do you love that about Jesus? Like, I don't know what you feel about religion. I don't know what you feel about the Bible, about Christians, but you cannot deny that Jesus is the defender of the needy and he sees the least always. I love that. I want to be more like that. Do you? 
I, I love the fact that he's the defender king and he lives and dies for poor, needy, vulnerable, broken, suffering, marginalized, oppressed people. I would, I would challenge you, switch the word when you're talking about needy, when you see the word needy um, or, or poor in that psalm, change it in your mind a little bit so you can relate to it. Change it to this, oppressed by other people, suffering troubles of all kinds, whether that's unfair court practices, malicious gossip, shaming in the community, those are the poor and the needy. It's not just the guy on the corner with the street with the sign asking for money. It's anybody marginalized. And so I love that Jesus then says, this is who we will be ministering to, my 12. This is who it will be. Um, something cool is we get to join him in it, right? We get to be a part of that I heard, um, how do I, I heard this, I heard this one time and I thought, I, I hate this question. So you're welcome. You're going to love it, not love it. Um, ask yourself this question. Um, how do I confront injustice of the needy in my own life? What am I doing? Me. Not what is my church doing? Not what are people that I know doing? What am I doing? Um, an author said once, and I thought this was just wise, but also a little painful. She said, um, you know, it, it's really good to write checks. Wait, does anybody do that anymore? It's really good to use your credit card and give money to, to awesome organizations and things. It's really good to do ministry in that way. It's really good to support your church. All of those things matter. But where are you touching need? Where are you looking face-to-face -face at need? You know, I'm guilty of this. I think I'm really guilty of of um, telling myself that I'm helping when really I'm avoiding. I, I don't know. I think about our church does a lot of cool stuff. And if you're not a member of this church or go to this church, I'll tell you, it doesn't matter. They do a lot of cool mission stuff locally. Um, there's so many opportunities, man, like Young Life Capernaum, for example, just one off the top of my head. It's a special needs ministry that goes in and loves on kids that, are, that, are, that have, need special attention. But you know what we need to make those things happen? We need people like us to walk hand, hand in hand and do goofy skits and be silly with them. You know, um, there's opportunities in this church to go to nursing homes and to minister. There's opportunities to go to Cornerstone Closet and sort things and, and look at people in the eyes and tell them they matter and say that you know them. And that's just, that's touching the need, right? That matters. Well, we get to be a part of that. I thought, um, I thought about this, this quote, and this is important, I think, for all of us to leave with. It's um, whoever you choose to follow is who you become, Whoever you choose to follow, you choose to worship is who you become. That was, um, it's kind of taken from this Ralph Waldo Emerson quote. I'm going to read the whole thing because I want you to think about your world and think about um, the choices that you make and which king you worship. He said this, a person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our heart, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship for what we are worshiping we are becoming. It's convicting, isn't it? I want to be following a defender of the needy. Well, he goes on, the psalmist goes on, and he tells us that um, the, third, the third characteristic of this ultimate king, this godly king, is that he's a supplier of prosperity and peace. The supplier of prosperity and peace. 
in verses six and seven. Do you remember that part I told, I said out loud about mowing grass? Okay, let me repeat that real quick because that was weird to me. He says, verse six, may he be like the king. May the king be like rain that falls on mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon no more. And then in 16, he follows that with, may there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. Okay, here's the cool thing about the Bible. I love this is um, I have no idea what that means. I love that because you know what? At the time, this was not written for me. It wasn't written for me. It was written for these people in this era and they would have understood that. You see, what they would have understood is prosperity would be translated there when he talks about mown grass. What he's talking about is, is pastured grass or pastured land, meaning um, animals are, were grazing on the land and it was really low, right, and eaten down. But in the morning, I mean, the evening, dew would come, right? And dew has purpose because it fuels and, and brings back to life the things that have been taken away. And so they would get that. I was like, who is mowing yards in the Old Testament? But that's not what that meant. I love that. It's, it's, it's the idea that, that the king gets to be part of building an environment that is like a benchmark for God's kingdom to grow. Do you see that? It's not like the literal sense he's saying, he's using this picture, this word picture that they would understand. When they see the words gold or grain or fruit in the Bible, I didn't know this, you might've known this. Anytime you see those three things, that's in reference to an ancient measure of prosperity. So when he's talking about the grain waving on tops of the mountains, he's saying, you know, hey guys, even places where grain isn't prominent, it's gonna be overwhelming because our prosperity is gonna be just overrun. We're not even gonna know what to do with all this. This is a way of understanding that ultimate reign for this king is gonna be prosperity on every conceivable way, things we have never even been able to think of. It's funny, um, in a limited sense, this was true of Solomon and his reign because if you, if you know anything about the reign of King Solomon, um, there was influence of wisdom. There was lots of good men were encouraged. There was righteousness. There was wealth. There was prosperity. The land enjoyed tranquility. There was peace for a while. But in a greater sense, this is pointing to Jesus. It points to him alone because only Jesus is going to be the supplier of prosperity and peace eternally. This kingdom, this Solomon's kingdom ended and it, it didn't end well. I mean, it, there was a, the kingdom was divided from that point on and so things weren't perfect. But this king, supplier of prosperity and peace. When you think of Jesus as king, think about Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44 verses three through four say this. For I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendant and they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Sound familiar? That's him. That's this, this savior coming to satisfy this need of the people of the whole world. Prosperity and peace will be complete, whole and unending when Jesus returns. Well, the fourth thing that we see in Psalm 72, the fourth characteristic of this ultimate king is that he will be the holder of dominion over all. And you know what? That just means he's gonna be powerful over all, powerful. Verses eight through 11, he, um, our psalmist explains what that means. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
May the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute and may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts and may all the kings fall down before him. All the nations serve him. That is a pretty specific, isn't it? It doesn't just say like these people in this neighborhood over here. It says all. It's cool, you know, um, when you look at the geography of all these things that he mentions, he's basically saying um, it's, it's, it's everything. You see, as cool as uh, David and Solomon, they had really great kingdoms and they ruled over um, these great kingdoms and first Kings and first Chronicles. You can go back and do some light reading about that. But they never, ever, ever had a kingdom that was from the river to the end of the earth, like he's talking about here. That never existed for them. And so what is he talking about? You know, he's talking about Jesus as king. He's prophesying something he probably didn't even realize. He thought this was just a wish list, but ultimately it comes true. You know, when I read through this, I um, immediately think about the unchurched people groups in the world. Do you think of that? When you see tribes, desert tribes bow down before him, and then you see all these different places, Tarshish, which is way, way over this way, and, and Sheba and Seba, which is way, way over this way, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, like, I get so troubled by that. Do you get troubled by that? By the idea that there are people in this world that don't have what we have in this place. Yeah, that troubles me too. But I love that we have a king who, who ultimately will handle every bit of that. Every unchurched people group will be replaced with people that know Jesus personally. I love that. You know, Matthew 28, 18 says this, that God gave his son dominion over all. Do you know that? And so that's something that I can trust. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's what Jesus says. Not just those. Now, this, is where, this is where I add a little something for Jesus. I'm sure he loves this. Um, that means not just those in the Bible belt. Not just those who have cute pink Bibles. Not just those who go to Bible study every week. It's dominion over all. And so even though I don't understand it, I trust it. I think about Chihi. You know, I think about my friend and I had never met a person who, who came to understand and know and seek Jesus because of a dream. I'd never known someone like that because I don't live that life, right? Like there's a church on every corner, but she did and he found her. And I believe he does the same still today. Well, the cool thing is like, you know, we talked about before, we get to be part of that effort, don't we? We get to be part of, of helping people understand that we serve a king who is the holder of dominion over everything. How do we get to be part of it? Well, there's this cool verse in John 13, 35, and it says that they will know him by our love. That is a little bit of pressure. You know, another thing I always think about, I think about like the ends of the earth, that seems insane, but you know what? You know what's really cool? about um, 2019 is we have this thing called the internet. Anybody, anybody heard of it? Yeah, a couple of you. We can reach, we can literally reach the ends of the earth. Can we not? From our pajamas with our laptop. I'm not saying, you know, I don't know what that means, but I'm just saying like, I'd open my eyes a little bit. Quit doubting what he is capable of doing to the ends of the earth and thinking it's only happening here because he is on fire and on the move everywhere. And we get to be a part of it when he invites us into that. A holder of dominion. Well, the fifth, um, the fifth character trait that I saw that uh, our psalmist was trying to help us understand was that this king, an ultimate king, a perfect king, has a name that endures forever. Not a name that endures for a couple generations. It says forever. Verse 17 
May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. You know, um, this reference, this verse 17 is, is referencing the Abraham, I always say that wrong. <laughs> my Susan, my Susan's called Abrahamic covenant, Abrahamic covenant. Uh, it was a covenant between God and Abraham. Thank you. We need to cut that later. It was, a, it, was a, it was a covenant between Abraham and God way back in Genesis, okay? It was in Genesis 12. And what it means basically, anytime, like used to guys, when I, before I became a Bible nerdy person, couldn't wait to understand, I would hear words like covenant and I'd be like, check out Charlie Brown's parents. Wah, wah, wah. Well, don't do that. Stay with me because it matters. Here's what that means. That covenant was just basically the beginning of the covenant of grace of God's decision to reach down into humanity and specifically save us. That's what that covenant was. It was the beginning of that. And so when he's talking about this idea that um, his name will endure forever and that people will be blessed in him, I want you to know that, that it all started back in Genesis. When God said that to, to Abraham, he basically said, through your offspring, all nations on this earth will be blessed. Wow, right? What a, what a cool thing to hear. And to know that that promise to Abraham, because his faith was proven when he, when he was willing to sacrifice his son and God saved him out of that situation. But you know what's cool? I hadn't really thought about this before. Is those exact same words were repeated to Isaac about his son, Jacob. And so Abraham seeing this covenant and these words, like the covenant was, it was that there's going to be this great nation. It was that you're going to have land that's going to go to your descendants. And it's going to be, it also was that you'd be the father of many descendants. Okay. It's kind of that three-part thing. So Abraham's thinking, these are my people, my descendants, my family. Well, I love that Isaac probably thought it meant his descendants and his family. Like how many generations did they think, oh, like my descendants, my grandkids, are gonna receive this beautiful gift. But this is what's so cool. D David might've thought the same thing, honestly, about Solomon. This is what he thought was going to happen in his son's life, in his son's reign. Well, God had something better in store. You know, God had something bigger that no one could have even understood, ever contemplated the fact that he meant us, right? And so when he says that, just understand that ultimately Jesus is king. Ultimately, this kingdom described in this psalm has not fully come to pass yet. We are in it right now. The future is Philippians 2.10, where every knee shall bow. The future is Hebrews 2.8, where everything under Jesus's, will be under Jesus' feet. And so when you see that verse, don't skip past it. Just think about this, that this king, regardless of what they believed, maybe they thought it was their name that was going to endure forever. Ultimately, it was talking about the king, Jesus. Mind blown, right? So cool. Jesus came to conquer sin and give us permanent, no takesies, backsies or anything, um, access to him and his promises. That's the beauty. Jesus will come back to secure the promises of that eternal kingdom too. That's, that's, that's what we look forward to. Well, I, uh, I would ask you this, and I know we know the Jesus, um, the Sunday school answer. I would ask you, who is your king? Who is your king? You know, we all, we all know what we know, especially if you're in this Bible study. We know that Jesus is king and he's our Lord and Savior and all these things. But let me just get real for just a minute. How do you live? How do you live? Do you live um, understanding that, um, that the kingship of Christ is the focus? Do you live with the understanding that what you worship, you become? Do we live like that? 
Because if I'm being honest with myself, there's a lot of other, other things and other kings that I worship day in, day out. And I'm just being real. Um, John Piper said this. I thought this was just, you need to hear this. He quotes C.S. Lewis, and it kind of goes back to the idea before I was saying that democracy is, is because we cannot handle being kings in this day and age. He says this, C.S. Lewis says this first. <clears throat> the real reason for democracy is that mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. And John Piper follows it with this. If there could be a king who is not limited in his wisdom and power and goodness and love for his subjects, then monarchy would still be the best of all governments, right? That makes sense. If such a ruler could ever rise in the world with no weakness, no folly, no sin, then no wise and humble person would ever want democracy again. The question is not whether God broke into the universe as king, he did that. The question is, what kind of king is he? And what difference would his kingship make for you, for me? If your king is not Jesus, what or who is your king? We all serve a king. Um, Tim Keller says it this way, whoever you choose to serve, whatever king you put on the throne, if it is not Jesus, First, it will enslave you. And second, it will not fulfill your needs. It won't. I mean, do you find that? Like, you don't have to nod or raise your hand or anything because I know the truth. Every time I try to fill a void that only Jesus fills, I ultimately am enslaved by it and ultimately not fulfilled and find myself back on the ground again, looking up to him saying, where did I go wrong? Anybody? You know, um, I was reading this book by Tim Keller and he quotes David Foster Wallace. I don't know if you know who he is. He's just, he was an American author and um, he died in 2005. He was not a believer, but he has said this one thing. And I thought, wow, a guy that doesn't believe in God, a guy that doesn't follow Jesus said this. This is what he said. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. This is a non-believer saying this, okay? He goes on to say, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. And you will, um, excuse me, never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and your beauty and you will always feel ugly. And when time starts to show and age starts to show on you, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or even sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Our default settings are to find and follow and worship a king that is not the savior of the world. It will enslave us and it will not fulfill us. I asked myself that question and I came up with a few things that I choose to worship on the daily. I mean, I, I know Jesus as my savior and I read my Bible and I go to church and I hang out with you guys and I still do it. We all do. 
Who or what is your king? I don't know if these are yours, but I just wanted to say them out loud and I want to ask you to think about what are the places that you are letting your life follow a different king. So for me, a couple of them I identified. It was super fun, awesome, real good times. Um, Culture was the first one. Culture. I had to ask myself, do I look different or do I look the same? Do I react differently or do I speak differently or do I respond or endure or forgive or love any different than the rest of the world? Sometimes I think I get it right, but majority of the time I don't. What other kings do I worship? Approval. I'm a recovering people pleaser. Thank you, right? It's a, it's a recovery in process. I'll be recovering for a while. But I have to ask myself that question all the time. Who am I seeking to please? Am I seeking to please people or am I seeking to please God? Because you know what I found is interesting? There's a cool byproduct of asking God, how can I please you today? I usually please people accidentally. <laughs> it may not look the same, but, but it's in a healthier way with boundaries and, and it's wise and it gives room for him to move in my heart and me not to depend on you or make you my God or more enable or, or just all the things that are so unhealthy that I do? Am I, am I a God pleaser or a people pleaser? The third um, king that I identified in my life is comfort. Comfort. Um, this question, you're welcome also. This question, <laughs> I asked myself, Chris, when was the last time you were uncomfortable for Jesus? When was the last time I was uncomfortable for the ultimate king, Jesus? I'm good at being comfortable for him. I love being with you guys, but this is comfortable for me. Am I uncomfortable for him ever? I don't know. I'm uncomfortable about a lot of other things. The fourth thing that I recognize that I worship as king sometimes is my to-do list. Anybody? Anybody in here? I see some of y'all. Y'all are like writing things. I know they're not notes. You're writing your list. I know you are. I do the same my to-do list. You know, I think um, the, a few years ago, somebody said this and it was awful. So I'm gonna share it with you so you can share in the awful. Ask the people closest to you, the people in your home, the people you do life with, um, mostly the short people, because they're real honest. The tall people, not as much. The little short ones that are noisy and messy, they're gonna be honest with you. Ask them this, what matters most to me based on how I spend my time? What would you say matters most to me? And that will scare you to death. <laughs> I, I feel like that, that's an honest way to find out. What am I putting ahead of, of my ultimate king? Am I choosing all my tasks and getting everything done? And it is, the answer is yes for me most days. And then the last thing I, I, I've identified as, as something that I worship as king often is this, my name. And that sounds really weird, right? Because we like to be like pious and we like to be pretend to be humble and all the things and we don't want to elevate ourselves. But, you know, we do it, don't we? Because we live in a culture where we live for likes, don't we? We do. And you can, you can think that you don't, but you do. Because I, I'm telling you, it's like, it's just, it's just, it's looking in the mirror and being honest with yourself. Like, I want other people to see me and know me. And so my question has to be, who am I seeking to make famous? Who? You know, um, it's hard for me if I talk to you guys and you're like, oh my gosh, thank you. You were so funny or you were so this or whatever. And it's hard for me to receive that. You know why? Because I'm so afraid of this. I'm so scared of this. Anytime I write anything or post anything or anything, I'm almost like reverse. I'm almost like the enemy's like making me, 
it's messed up. I'm so messed up. But, but it's like, I just want to always point to him. Philippians 2, 7 through 9 is one of my favorite verses when it's talking about Jesus and it's this. But he made himself a man of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming into the likeness of men, us. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus was a man of no reputation. And you know why? Because the only thing he lived to do was to point up to his father. Amen. That's what he lived and died to do. I want to be more like this. We always resemble the king we follow, don't we? Always. Well, the idea, uh, it, it was not lost on me that I was like, okay, I got to open with something funny because last week was heavy. But, you know, when I, when I decided to open with Robbie's awesome wedding vows, um, I never even thought about the connection of the fact that Jesus says that he is our bridegroom, you know, that he makes these awesome vows to us and what he will be to us. He is the king, but he's also just like our precious personal savior. I love that. And so in closing, I wanted to share with you the thing that, um, that Robbie closed with. And I thought, boy, um, thinking about a, a, a savior who loves us this much, as much as he loves his future wife. And then I'm going to pray. He says this, Courtney, when I'm weak, Jesus is the strong through me. These vows have meaning because it's Christ living through me and I'm thankful to have a best friend to journey through life alongside. Because not only do you make it more fun, you make me better. I'm more like Christ because of you. May we all be more like Christ because of our bridegroom. May we all be more like Christ because of who we worship. I'm gonna pray for us. Father, um, thank you that you take things like um, a king coronation ceremony and you make it applicable to our lives. I love that you do that, that you had great purpose in who this was written for and how it was used, but you have great purpose for it for our lives today. So thank you. You spell out so perfectly through the words of David or Solomon, you spell out Jesus for us. And um, I, I, I ask forgiveness for all the times that I don't put him on the throne, that I put other things or people on the throne. I know you know my heart and I know you long for me to come back to worshiping the ultimate king. And so for everyone in this room, I pray that you help us answer that question. Who is my king? Where are those places that, uh, that I choose to elevate other things to try to, to try to substitute for you? You are always near, you're always there and you are eternal and you are never, ever going to change. God, I pray that we can all lean in on that. Now, thank you so much for your son that you did send him here to satisfy that crazy covenant that, that all those bazillions of years ago sounded probably crazy, but you are choosing to fulfill that because you desperately love us and want us to know you. Thank you. And we, um, we ask for this time and, and the future conversations that are about to happen. Um, God, will you, will you just be present in those? Will you make sure that we are always pointing up to you, but through our discovery of what we see in your word and in our lives and how you're revealing yourself, God, I pray that we can respond in a way that, that just brings you great joy. And um, I thank you so much for all of those that are here and watching and listening online, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.